Good evening to everyone. Hi, everybody. My name is Suze Appel. I'm one of the local Dharma leaders, and so it's nice to see everybody. We are in the three months of looking at the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. In July, we explored greed. Tonight is the third week of exploring hatred. And in um, September, we'll be talking about delusion. Something that we do on the Sunday morning sit, uh, which we started not quite six years ago, we spent a long time writing up a community statement. And it's become even more meaningful because some of you are in little horizontal boxes that I'm seeing as you are seeing me in a horizontal box, and some of you are here in person. So as we begin our meditation, I'd like to read our community statement. It's a nice one to remind us about this, the creation of Sangha even though some of us are here in person and some are on Zoom. As we enter this space, let us remember, remember that we are entering a sacred space, a space for being in the moment with whatever is present. We recognize our deep connection with one another, where each of us is welcome just as we are freeing our own minds from greed, hatred, and delusion through this practice offers the opportunity for others to do the same and reduces ignorance and hatred in the world. It is with gratitude that we practice together. So as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the third talk on the second poison of hatred and ill will. And in the first couple weeks of this month, Tim Guile, one of our guiding teachers, and Steve Wilhelm, one of the local Dharma leaders and the man who leads the East Side Sangha, they both talked about why this mind state of hatred and ill will is a poison to us, us and to others. It keeps us separate from each other. It reinforces a sense of self. It encourages us to tell and retell the story of the content of what brought up the mind state into being and keeps us kind of caught in that story. And in its most fundamental essence, hatred and ill will keeps us from being fully present in the moment. The response to something that has already happened is being brought forward to this moment and the next moment and the next moment and the next. So we know that this mind state and emotion along the continuum of anger, ill will, and hatred is unskillful and harmful. This evening, I want to talk about one of the arenas where hatred and ill will arise that I think is especially challenging and that's the realm of the world and politics and all the big issues that live there. I want to talk about this realm tonight because it's so easy to fall into ill will and hatred when we're in that space and then to justify it. 
I want to talk about it also because sometimes it feels like an insurmountable challenge to not fall into hatred and ill will. And I also want to talk about it because it matters to me personally, and I've been working with this for years in my own practice. I've been a political activist since I was a teenager, and I've tried for all the years that I've been on this path to figure out how to, how to maneuver this without hatred and ill will in my heart and mind. It's subtle and nuanced work. Um, it's the challenge of opposing without hating. And as we explore this ill will, I want to invoke the suggestion that Steve Wilhelm made a couple weeks ago. In the Eastside Sangha, they have a guideline or rule that they don't use names of anybody when they're talking about this worldly realm. I appreciate that suggestion a lot because, you know, here we are in Seattle and people call us the left coast, but not everybody thinks the same way I do or the same way you do. And so it's not true that we all have the same views. And so tonight we're just going to look at themes and aspects of how to practice with ill will and hatred, regardless of the person or the issue or the content. And so when we, I'm going to talk for, oh, 40 minutes maybe, maybe a little less, and we'll have plenty of time for everyone to have their own comments. So I really, I want to thank you for following that guideline. So we know that this mind state and emotion along the continuum of anger, ill will, and hate is unskillful and harmful. But I want to talk a little bit about language. Um, sometimes people don't consider anger in the same continuum of ill will and hate. But for tonight's talk, if I use anger, ill will, hate, they're all on the same continuum and I'm talking about the same thing. And the difference may only be in a matter of levels of or depths of emotion or the different aspects of wishing or causing harm to others. Tim and Steve both talked, they both brought in this amazing sutta with a simile of the saw. For those of you who weren't here the first two weeks, it starts with, this is from, from the sutta, monks, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handed saw, he among you who let his heart get angered, even at that, would not be doing my bidding. And then it goes on in that same kind of way. And after Tim and, and Steve talked about this simile of the two saws, they both said, whew, this is a high bar. And then when I read the Metta Sutta, or part of it the, at the beginning of the sit, it also is a high bar. It's been my experience on the path that every single teaching is a high bar, starting with the very first one, being present in this moment. I don't know about you, but I've never found that to be very easy. Buddhism, this practice, expects a lot from us. 
sincerity, honesty, diligence, resolve, practice, and more practice. And so do these teachings on the three poisons. In some ways, you know, when ill will shows up, regardless of what realm it shows up in, personal or intimate, community or worldly, it's all ill will. Um, Tim and, and Steve both pointed out that it's a response to Vedana, the, the feeling tone of something is unpleasant or I don't like it. And then from that feeling tone, stronger emotions and thoughts arise. Steve talked about how it can keep our minds and hearts trapped in a state that is the total opposite of what the Buddha taught. And Tim reminded us how hard it is to know what to do with the pain of all the injustice and serious harm we are witness to in our world. And he raised the great question of whether hate and ill will will ever assuage that pain. Tim also framed all three poisons as the roots that keep us in suffering. And all ill will is connected to a really strong sense of self, of me, through separation, dividing people into us and them, right and wrong, good and bad. Often, I think when, in my experience, when anger, ill will arise in the more personal realm, while I sometimes attach a story to it and hold on to it for a while, I think it can dissipate more easily than in this worldly realm. There's a deaf um, uh, Ajahn, who's the abbot of one of the monasteries in um, Australia, and the way he defines ill will really speaks to how it shows up in this more worldly realm or political realm. This is what he says. His name is Ajahn Brahm. Ill will refers to the desire to punish, hurt, or destroy. It includes sheer hatred of a person or even a situation, and it can generate so much energy that it is both seductive and addictive. At the time, it always appears justified, for such is its power that it easily corrupts our ability to judge fairly. In this realm, this political, worldly realm, we often don't just oppose the person or persons we believe are responsible for this awfulness that we see. We often want to do them harm. We can sometimes gloat over their misfortunes and even wish them more of those. So I think there are a bunch of reasons why this ill will, this one in the worldly realm, arises so easily, so often, and stays around so long. First, we often feel, feel ill will towards persons in power who are on the opposite sides of issues we care really deeply about. Our care often comes from a deep love, whether it's the earth, nature, animals, ethics, a sense of fairness, beliefs around justice. In its rawest form, poet David White says, Anger, or you can put ill will in here, points towards the purest form of compassion 
as it illuminates what we belong to, what we wish to protect, and those things for which we are willing to hazard and even imperil ourselves. The stakes in, the, in these areas are really big. So it's no wonder that it's easy for these emotions to come up because we're talking about areas that we care deeply about. Another thing that I think is true is that we know amazingly minute details about some of these people. And these are leaders who we would never have met personally, but through the worldwide media, we are privy to every utterance, every facial expression, every tweet or post or anything and everything they've said and done. And we scrutinize them beyond what I think we would do in our ordinarily da ordinary daily lives. All of this intimate information acts kind of like a fuel for the latent ill will and the care that we feel towards these issues. We deeply want to believe and feel that we're doing something about these issues that we care about. And then we put a face on some of those examples and we direct our anger and ill will towards the face, not towards the issue. We personalize these issues. And in a way, I think we can, we delude ourselves into thinking that we're actually doing something because our anger feels so strong. It feels so big. Even when in actuality, all we're doing is, is being angry and sharing that. And most of us, you know, we, we want to feel connected and there's a way where our, when we take positions about these various issues and we find compatriots who feel the same about that issue, there's this sense of unity and connection. You know, for most of my life, ever since I was maybe, I think I went on my first demonstration at 15, one of my most favorite activities is going to a rally. You know, I have my, my sign and I'm chanting, the people united will never be defeated, you know, and you feel all this sense of unity. And at the same time, I've been a practitioner for a long time. And I realized that I was only feeling connected to some of the people, the people who I was walking with, and we were all united in our opposition or in our dislike of other people. So I started to see some of the limitations of what I thought was a really strong sense of connection. Over the years, my behavior on, I still go to a lot of demonstrations, but over the years, my behavior has changed. Sometimes I'll go and talk to some of the police officers who are trying to maintain peace. Um, other times I have gone over to the other side of the street and talked to people who are holding their signs that are, that show an opposite position to mine. You can imagine that these have not always been very successful interactions, but the effort has felt really worthwhile because I was seeking some understanding, 
I was practicing some listening and trying to see whether there was even a possibility of some sense of human connection. The truth of interconnectedness is not only about those who agree with me on a topic. It's about all of us, you know. What happens in my neighborhood affects you in your neighborhood. What happens on the Pacific coast of the United States affects the people on the Indian Ocean coast. There's also, we often feel a lot of hopelessness about some of the issues that are in our present world. We don't know what can be done. We feel confused as to what we can do. And it's easy to blame somebody. Hopelessness and despair can feel awful. And it's often easier to feel angry and find somebody to blame and send out some ill will to those who we feel are responsible instead of really sitting with the truly unpleasantness of that sense of hopelessness. In September, when we start talking about delusion, I think you can see how there's a real connection between um, the deluded sense of both interconnectedness and a sense that I'm doing something about it when all we're really doing is, is expressing our ill will. It'll be interesting next month to, to look at all these different aspects of delusion. One of the other ways that um, I don't think Tim and, and Steve talked about this, that ill will can be such a poison is that it can force us into a a position of conflict within our own sense of sila, our own sense of values. Going back to the metta sutta, you know, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, omitting none. For many of us, those of us who've practiced a long time, have gone on a lot of retreats, we've probably um, read the metta sutta hundreds of times and have felt that it's really been a part of our practice. And yet, where does this uh, very prevalent feeling of ill will and hatred towards those who we disagree with, how does that fit with our sense of sila? And also the aspirations for our practice, also coming from the metta sutta where it starts with this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. We might, might not know the path of peace, but we're exploring it. We're looking for it. We're, as we have the aspiration to be on the path of peace. And when we look at our aspirations for our lives and our practice, you know, how does these feelings and actions that grow out of ill will and anger, how do they fit? I don't know how many of you have actually asked yourself, well, what is my aspiration for my practice, for my life? I actually do that fairly often and just that's my kind of my inclination. And so, you know, I want to live a life of value, to treat others well, 
do my jobs well, take care of my family and me and my community, to try to give more than I take, to be of service. And then I ask, well, where does hatred and ill will fit in with all of that? Can I have a dual path here? When we're so caught up in these expressions of ill will and hatred, it keeps us in that hot zone of emotions, thoughts and opinions that we're holding on to really strongly. There's so much heat that comes from those feelings of anger and righteousness and outrage. All the teachings about Nibbana and freedom talk about that being a cooling. So here we are, we're throwing more coals on the flame and heating up ourselves, our minds and bodies and hearts. I don't think I'm only expressing my own personal experience when I saw that this topic, this hatred and ill will is a poison and wishing harm to others, that I didn't think it was just my experience. So I'm hoping that this, um, what I have to share is um, you can relate to. It's not been an easy process trying to have my political activism in my path the same time. I have some suggestions of things that I've worked with and that I'd like to suggest. As always, mindness is, mindfulness is always our best friend. Paying attention to what's present in our minds, hearts, and bodies, and watching as it changes can be a real doorway into understanding how to tame this inclination toward ill will. Shantideva described his so-called enemies as the ones who were his teachers, especially around patients. This might be a big ask, but I'm wondering if we could have a change of attitude toward those we have labeled our enemies. Maybe it's not a specific person who might be a teacher, but maybe we can see what happens inside of ourselves when we start naming others as enemies. Can we learn from just that very process? As we all know, anger can be a pretty pleasurable, energizing emotion. Um, a lot of feelings of self-righteousness, there's a lot of me there, and we get all worked up. But along with the pleasure and the energy, there's a lot else that, that is there that's hiding underneath that anger. Just like the sense of hopelessness or despair, there might be other emotions below that anger and ill will. And if you're like me, sometimes it's easier to just sit with my feelings of anger than to really sit with how unpleasant it is to feel sad or scared or overwhelmed. Discovering what is beneath the anger and bring my, bringing mindfulness to that can really help you understand what um, has arisen. Here's another hard one. As we bring mindfulness with us, 
can we try to humanize the objects of our hatred and ill will? Given that we think we know them so well because we've seen and read so much about them, can we even imagine them as children facing the same conditions, um, facing the conditions that brought them to the place where they are now? Can we imagine them with their own desires for safety and happiness? Many of us, maybe all of us, have at different times been confronted with some distortions in our minds. Can we understand that these other people for whom we have so much animosity, that they're also similarly being caught in these distortions? Is there any way that we can actually see these other people as ordinary human beings with fears, ambitions, failures, successes, all of us, as we know, are products of our conditioning. Two years ago, we spent the whole year on the cycle of dependent origination and really delved into that. And in case we hadn't learned it before, we know that we, that's, we're all products of our conditioning. Can you imagine these others also being products of their conditioning? For the most part, we don't have any relationship with the people that we send ill will and hatred towards. I'm pretty active in my neighborhood and I know my city council person. I disagree with him on a lot and I don't have any ill will towards him. You know, I've met him, I talked to him and um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna vote for him again or not. But with him, it feels really easy to separate out a disagreement from the sense of ill will. And I'm wondering if for those for whom we do have a lot of ill will, can we separate the disagreement on the issue or the behavior from the person, him or herself, towards whom we're directing all this ill will? It's worth asking the question. Tanisaro Bhikkhu is this amazing monk and teacher, and he has a wonderful article called Antidote to Anger. And I, in it, he talks about the distinction between skillful and unskillful behavior. And he says it's at the basis of everything in the Dhamma. He goes on to say that the Buddha taught that there are problems in the mind for which there are skillful responses to do something. And then there are some things in the mind that all we're supposed to do is just watch. You know, there's no handbook, but there are guidelines about how to become the sort of person who can discern between those. And that's what we're doing on this path. There are real injustices in the world, real problems. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that the Buddha's perspective is not so much that we, um, want to do something about the injustices, but that we allow the anger, the emotions, to color our perceptions of the situation and of what should be done. He says that the Buddha's anger attitude toward anger is if you want to give an appropriate response to a bad situation, you have to get the anger out of the way. We have to deal with the underlying emotions 
in such a way that we can see clearly. We don't swallow the anger, we also don't just let it all hang out. We use our mindfulness and take a close look at what is, what is inside of us. Look at the mind that is filled with anger and ill will. And we do this so that we take actions that don't result in regret or shame or others not trusting us. And we look at the possible consequences of taking actions. Tanisaro Bhikkhu also suggests that we look at the bigger picture. This is a, I've ne, I had never um, read this before. He says that the Buddha described the truth of the human condition that human beings behave in many ways that are really harmful. Well, we already know that. And in um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's understanding of the Buddha's teachings, he's saying that you should, he's not saying that you need to let the world be as it is, but it serves to remind us that injustice is not an extraordinary thing in the world. And because it's not extraordinary, it doesn't give us any extraordinary rights to do and say whatever we like without thinking about the consequences. There's always been injustice in the world, and we want to make sure that when we respond, that we respond with the very most skillful uh, response possible to help break that cycle. Some of us have probably asked ourselves, well, what's the harm in just having thoughts of ill will or hatred if I don't ever say them or act on them? They're just kind of my own little secret. But we are the heirs of our karma. Our personality, our character are molded by what we think and say and do. Each time we feel ill will towards someone, it makes it easier to feel ill will the next time. Our very lives are shaped and continue to be shaped by the karmic choices we make. We've, heard, we've all heard this phrase so many times, whatever we continually focus on, that will be the content of our minds. And we're responsible for our minds. You know, we, we've been taught, don't believe what's in your mind, but once it's there, you're responsible for what you're going to do with it. We're responsible for our minds, we're responsible for what we do with them, and we're responsible for our actions. I really like what Zen teachers, how they talk about the impossibility of realizing many of the teachings, but we do them anyway. And we do them because that's how we're going to end suffering. And I think practicing with the three poisons is kind of like that. I don't know if we're, we'll ever fully eliminate them, but we continue to practice with them, understand what's beneath them, examine them, let go of what needs to be let go of. And yes, it's a high bar to live our daily lives and 
not feed the ill will and hatred that may arise. In addition to some of the things that I've already said, I wanted to point towards some teachings that I think can be really helpful in dealing with ill will and hatred. And they come from the list of the 10 paramis. I think most people are familiar with the paramis. They're sometimes called the perfections. They're another one of those things that the Zen folks talk about that you work on and you never perfect, but you keep working on them because that's the way we're going to find our freedom. They're sometimes called noble qualities or components of integrity, and they are the qualities of the mind and heart that once perfected result in liberation. And there's 10 of them, but I'm only going to talk about four. And the first is patience. Shantideva described dealing with his enemies taught him patience. And patience is sometimes described as the extinguisher of the defilements. And I think the way it extinguishes them, first of all, is it invites us to just pause. That the emotions are up, somebody you know, you just saw another news item that just got you going and you feel the screaming in your head and you're, in, you're patient with those emotions of anger or overwhelm or disappointment. We sit with them with patience. And so we do that so that the mind can be clear and calm enough that we know what, what skillful action we can take. We are patient with ourselves when we're filled with these emotions of ill will and hatred. We're patient with the feelings of restlessness and eagerness to act. We're patient with those screams in our heads that this is so wrong and I have to do something about it. So the first one is patience. The second is resolve or resoluteness. And I think it's a reminder that why do we practice? What are our aspirations for our practice? Why do we come to Seattle Insight on Monday nights and Thursday nights and Sunday mornings and all the times that we do? We want to be one skilled in goodness and knowing the path of, pre of peace. We want to awaken to live our lives with presence. But sometimes the problems of the world seem so huge that we might be inclined to just kind of give up. And I've sometimes seen that we give up on our practice as well. So this parami of resolve or resoluteness, it's a time to recommit to our practice. The third is renunciation. And one of my favorite definitions is of renunciation is to let go of those things that don't serve us, that don't benefit us or our practice, and that cause us to suffer. It's like a cleaning out of clutter. And there's a lot of clutter sometimes in our minds. Sometimes it's that we have too much news coming in. Sometimes we hang out with the wrong people, wrong in terms of stimulating this kind of response of ill will and hatred. Instead of 
spending so much time with that clutter that stimulates the ill will and hatred. Perhaps spend more time thinking about and reading about people who inspire you, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh. There's a whole list. And maybe there are people in your own small circle who have really inspired you because they seem to have a good handle on how to balance all these emotions of ill will. And the last one is equanimity, which isn't about just accepting things. It's about impartially embracing whatever arises because it's already here. And so you embrace it with a compassionate heart and mind. And equanimity means that you have a sense of priorities. You know what you're going to accept and what you can't, what you can change and what you can't change. You wonder, you think about how you're going to spend your energy. You know what your priorities are. You know how much time and energy you have and what you're going to do with them. So patience, resolve, renunciation, and equanimity. And I want to close with this story. It's a, an old Hasidic tale of a prophet who used to go out into the city every single, single week to proclaim against injustice, evil, and oppression. But week after week, and month after month, and year after year, the inequities, the exploitation continued, despite his weekly admonitions and all of his work. Friends and disciples of the prophet came to him and begged him to discontinue this futile attempt to call the inhabitants to righteousness. But the prophet replied, I must continue. I speak out so that I don't become one of them. So yes, we continue to speak out and act to support our sense of ethics, of sila, our commitment of doing no harm. And we ask ourselves, can I speak out and act without ill will in my hearts, without ill will in our hearts and minds? The prophet spoke out so that he didn't become one of them, that he didn't become one who was doing harm to others. And I believe that if we hold a lot of ill will and hatred while we're acting and speaking out, we face the danger of becoming one of them. So we practice with anger, we practice with hatred and ill will, and it's not a call to do nothing. It's as people in this world, we're engaged. We want to be the peace we want to, wish to see in the world. We want to be a force of good, to do no harm, to live our lives from a desire for peace and freed from hatred and ill will. So thank you for your attention. And we're going to have time for listening to your responses of how do you how do you deal with this poison of anger, ill will, and hatred in this worldly realm? It sometimes feels um, really disconnected from our practice, but in fact, it's where the practice and the and our daily lives in the world where the rubber meets the road, you know? So I'd be really interested in any, what anyone has to say have you have you navigated this one? 
and we can do this both online and in person and <clears throat> um, online you can go to the reactions button and raise your hand and here there's a microphone up close to just over on those that little threesome of chairs so i would welcome uh, any any and all comments questions arguments whatever Okay, Iris, hi. Are you, have you unmuted, Iris? Yes, I think you have. Please go ahead. Oh, you haven't? Um, can we, is there something we can do to make it possible? Our wonderful tech people know how to do that. Okay. Oh, it's there you are. Hi. Hi. Hi, Suze. Um, thank you so much for that wonderful, wonderful talk. Really appreciate it. There are several points that you made, and I'm not the type to take notes, so I won't remember all of them. Um, um, and, and I, well, a couple of them that are still in my mind. You know, one is about that um, what we care about, what we love are things that were um, compelled or uh, impassioned to, to work on and, and, and try and see some positive change in the world. And that's so important because that, that love is such a, a positive force in our lives and in the world. And, um, and the last point that you made in response to the story about the Hasidic prophet to be able to, to do our actions with care and love and respect and kindness so that we're not adding to the hate in the world. Goodness knows there's enough of that. And, and you know, for me, um, it's not like I'm full of hate for a whole day or an hour or even a minute. You know, uh, a hateful thought or a thought of ill will you know, comes in and I see it and and it passes and and so I don't expect for for those difficult thoughts and feelings to to not be there, but it's you know I have to meet them with love and and kindness, right? And so um, just as you said, our mindfulness being our our friend to watch how how everything is changing all the time. And um, I'll just sort of finish by, you know, the, the idea of, of, of discernment. And, um, you know, I'm often checking in with myself and also when I'm in groups, um, as one of the few Buddhists in some of my groups, though you don't have to be Buddhist to, to embrace so many of these uh, ideas, of course, uh, that we need to act with love and understanding, uh, you know, and and fierce, you know, there's fierce love, uh, but we we don't want to add to the hate in the world, and also the sort of call to action if we feel so moved to protect what we love, you know, find people who are doing those things and work together. So 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you, Iris. And Iris is one of the um, people in the climate action group with Sims, and they've been offering these mindful walks in nature, which I think is a good way also of reconnecting with what we love and why we work around issues of climate. So thank you for your work there. I loved what you said about not adding to the hate. I remember right after 9-11, Sylvia Borstein, who's a teacher at Spirit Rock, was quoted with that she wasn't going to add any more anger to what was already there, that there was already plenty. And just that idea of what are we adding to? And I thank you for the underlying and underscoring the love and compassion and the connection. Yeah, appreciate it, Iris. <clears throat> yes, please. There's a microphone. And if um, so, I knew Iris, but if you would um, be willing to say your name, that would be lovely. Um, there's a. It's already on. No, it's not. But it will be. No, but they need to. Okay. Hear. There you go. Hi. Hi, thank you. Uh, I found your uh, commentary very useful. Um, I guess I'm really confused because the way I think about anger, particularly in young people, it helps them to revolt. And it is a powerful thing, uh, stimulant for them. Mm -hmm. And um, not having that energy, I think, can put us to not act on things. So in some way, I think we can be mindful and see that anger arises, or I, I'm not sure about ill will, but, uh, and then use that to do something. Uh, on the other side, I think, you know, I can see anger arise and then I can, okay, I should, this is not the right thing to be feeling. And then I can just let it pass by and not take an action. So how do we really, uh, you know, operate in the two different situations or, or maybe, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know if I'm articulating this properly or I'm happy to kind of elaborate more if you need. Yeah, well, and when we were talking about this at the Sunday sits, a lot of people were saying that anger wasn't on the same continuum, mm -hmm. partly because of what you were saying, mm -hmm. that, you know, something happens and you read about um, an event of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so our response of it's wrong and it, it stimulates the, the kind of emotion in us, and we could label that as anger. It's that when we're acting out of it, there's not necessarily the clarity and calmness of the mind. And it's hard in the midst of all that emotion to really see what's the most skillful act. And so it's not, I don't think it's to get rid of the anger, but to understand it and to sit with it. It's often, I find anyway, in my experience, that anger brings a kind of energy and impulsiveness and let's get moving. Mm -hmm. And I think what 
the practice is also saying it's not that you're not keep responding to the wrongness of harm being done in the world but sit with it and understand it before you take action and so for me anyway that's that's how i distinguish between them um, there's it, it's um, I'm not a Buddhist scholar so I don't you know there's a lot talked about in the suttas about disenchantment and um, reducing the passion that comes up and that the the um, depth of response to things and yet so much of our joy and connection in life comes from that and so i think it's really nuanced i think there's um, a way of being with it not losing the energy but being sure that it's not um, contaminated with some of the ill will some of that blame um, and I think it's nuanced. I think it's subtle. And I wish Tim were here because I think he would be able to speak more to that disenchantment and that passion and the, the power of the emotion around it. No, I think I hear what you're saying. I think it, maybe the way I'm listening is trying to find, I mean, the, there are ways to finding internal energy versus external kind of uh, ways to uh, uh, mitigate i think but so it's more powerful to operate from an internal uh, point of center mm -hmm. uh, than than to just you know try to find uh, blame or other external ways of mitigating and i think also um, looking at the kinds of actions that we take mm -hmm. and some of them are very energizing and um and others are quieter but the, the value of them may be very similar, or the quieter ones might even have more value and skillfulness in them. So really looking at um, how much um, both the ill will that might arise, the separation of, um, I feel all of this, we're gonna take an action and it's against you. Mm. Um, I think there's, I've already said it, you know, that the nuanced and subtle, I think it's important to bring um, that patience and pause and really to explore fully what's happening inside of us. Yeah, no, this is super helpful. Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up because I think um, the energy of response, you know, um, in an in an odd way, odd's the wrong word, but the murder of George Floyd did something for our country, for many of us, where it was like a tipping point. There were all of these other men that, over, you know, all along, and we kept on saying their names. And then there was something about that that just went, oh my God, I can't just be saying their names. Mm -hmm. I got to get out here and do Correct. something. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's that. And thank goodness for that. I mean, not that he died, not that he was murdered, but that it affected us. You know, there's something so 
powerful about being affected by harm in the world. And we want to be. We want our hearts to be broken by that. You know, so um, staying with the broken heart and seeing where the anger comes in with that and then the skillfulness. I think it takes a lot of practice and patience and conversation with others who are also willing to own that, you know, my heart is broken. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with, with our broken hearts? Um, I'm sorry, I don't have no. more of an answer. No, no, this is very helpful. I think it's, I really maybe there is no answer here. <laughs> I really appreciate you bringing it up because I think it is part of that kind of like, how do we actually navigate um, being um, practitioners where um, having compassion for the pain of the world and acting on it and not doing any harm and living, a, a being on the path of peace is what we're about. How do we do that in this crazy world? That, I mean, what a... You, you can know? ask a follow-up question. Sure, so please. Think, this is exactly, I think, the kind of conversation I wanted to kind of uh, roll up. Uh, so I usually don't experience ill will or I, or maybe I'm not able to kind of detect. I'm not, and I think that is part of the reason I'm also not uh, active, I think, in working on important things, even though I have energy to do more. Uh, and maybe it is something that is not getting rolled up. Uh, and yeah, it's, I guess, I mean, navigating that space of mm -hmm. having uh, something really touch you very deeply, but also acting on it uh -huh. is always not it doesn't happen, I think, for most yeah. people. I think for a lot of people it doesn't. You know, recently in the Seattle Times, there was this whole thing about how you deal with the Seattle freeze, right. you know, the unfriendliness right. Right. and stuff. I've never experienced the Seattle freeze, mm -hmm. and partly because I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. And so I start, I talk to strangers all the time. Right. And um, I think there are other ways besides getting all worked up for being engaged and making connections and healing the pain and anger and harm and trauma in the world. There are, there, each of us finds our own way. And sometimes it's just reaching out to somebody. It doesn't take, you don't have to get all worked up about it. You know, you just are paying attention and see what's happening in this other, with another person. Um, someone who looks really sad or anxious and we, you know, start a conversation. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, what's your name? Rishi. Rishi, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Please um, go ahead. Um, there's a hand up. Could you say your name? Hi, yes, I'm Christina. Hi, um, Christina. Hi, thank you so much for uh, for all of that and also the great questions. Um, I actually uh, had a similar question and so I'm glad that Rishi brought that up about, um, about anger and um, 
I, yeah, because I also thought it, it seemed important to pay attention to anger and where that was coming from. Um, but as you were talking, I realized that it, what you were talking about sort of tied into something that I've heard before about stress responses and how, um, you know, if you have a conflict with someone, for example, um, you might get a stress response and that, um, that, that's related to evolutionarily we think that you know we're we're basically feeling like oh we're running from some kind of predator and so then we get a flight or flight or fight response um which is not helpful in in overcoming that conflict with someone and so um it's it's actually better to sort of let yourself not be stressed anymore and calm down before you try to come to a resolution and I wonder if it's similar with anger where it's, you kind of need to be patient and allow that anger to pass a little bit before you can skillfully achieve your goal of, of maybe figuring out how to work with whatever it is that's difficult for you. And that kind of ties in with what you were saying about talking to people on the other side. Um, uh, if you're demonstrating something and you think, oh, let me hear from the other side. Can we maybe understand each other better? Um, yeah. Anyway, just wanted to share that. Yeah. It feels Thank like it, it ties in. Yeah. Um, Steve Wilhelm had shared with me something that the dialogue, I think it comes from the Dalai Lama, where he talks about, for the most part, when we feel anger, it's because, you know, we've been hurt by something, been really touched. We've been disrespected, maybe made to feel invisible or small or not worthwhile. And sometimes I think if we um, let go of the word anger and really own what's, what's behind that and um, in a I statement as opposed to you made me feel whatever you did, you know, that, that whole thing. But to really explore, well, what's what's beneath that? Why did I feel? Why do I feel angry? And um, what you know? How am I touched by that? But I appreciate what you said about um, the the flight or fight, and um, and sometimes too, I don't think we give each other enough um, room to just say. I'm so worked up right now. I don't know how to talk about this with you. Would you be willing to have coffee with me tomorrow? You know, let me let me just kind of do you know see what's happening. Um, and I I want to be skillful and I want to be respectful and I don't want I don't want to just lash out. You know, so um, giving each other some a break in some of that if we can. Um, can be a real gift to both parties, you know, just giving ourselves some time. Absolutely. Thanks, Christine. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Anyone here? Oh, thank you, please. Oh, I see two. Uh, woman first, and then Bob. Hi. Can you, are you unmuted? I think so. They're working on it if, it, if it's not yet. Try, can you say something? 
you you had your hand up. I don't know your name. I apologize. Are you good? Do you still want to speak? You had your hand up earlier, a woman with a short hair and black shirt. You, yes. Would you like to speak? Margaret, thank you. So sorry. Did you? Oh, that's okay. Hey, we're all we're all figuring this out as we go. I didn't know it was me. I I, that's um, okay. Thanks a lot, Suze, because um, your talk your talk was so clear for me. Many many things more many things that you said I related to, like the anger and the righteous feeling, and um, I am in the bat in the habit of parroting things that I read and hear. And then so I could, whoever I'm repeating it to, flip it into righteousness and then huffing and puffing about. But um, it was, yes, of course, the the feelings underlying anger and um, the broken heart, broken heart is really helpful because if I'm, because it's softening and it brings me to, humility and it's easy for me to relate to almost anyone who will relate to me in that state and the state underneath anger that's scary to me besides fear itself is despair um Mm -hmm. because i find it immobilizing and numbing you know as in a depressive state so i guess i'm answering some of my own asking for help with that because you said something about hang with an inspi- with an inspiring person it was writing down names that you Aja and so on the who you mentioned but um and there may be inspiring it, people in your own life too. Oh, oh oh and there and there are, it's just a really frightening place for me to be in despair because I feel frozen and uh, unable to act. I'm quick with the anger and I'm impulsive with it and it doesn't work out so well. It rarely, rarely does. Um, and lately, uh, chanting in the street doesn't feel too too good. Yelling at the detention center does not feel feeling too useful now um, although it's something i care about very much um yeah so the despair if you would say a word about sure. thanks um, yes and thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts there's a wonderful piece of a marge percy poem about despair where she i don't know the actual language But she says that um, when we give in to despair, we're giving in to what those who want to keep us quiet, want want the status quo to stay the same, want to keep um, systems of unfairness. Uh, We're giving in to them. And that instead of following our despair, Use it as a kick in the pants. Um, don't let it, don't let it um, uh, manifest in that way. And that seeing, dis- I, I see, dis- I kind of 
turn it around and say despair is really what um, the system of injustice would love us to be in because then we're not going to do anything. We're going to be immobilized. And I don't know if that helps at all, Margaret, but it's it, something it, that it does. Helped, it has helped me yeah. uh, to look at that. Because and, I know and, I've heard depression being said that it's anger or what that you turn into yourself. Mm -hmm. And so what you just said about despair being this helplessness that I'm turning into myself, you know, I mean, this oppression that I turn into myself, turn back on myself, keeps me down and, and, uh, and disempowered, certainly. And, you know, Sangha, not only Buddhist Sangha, like we have right now, but community is the best antidote. Because you know, not everybody is feeling that at the same time. And we can usually talk each other out of it when, but isolating ourselves with our own feelings of hopelessness don't do much. So thank you and, um, and good luck with all that to all of us, yeah. So Bob, the last one, and then there's some announcements. Hi, Bob. Hi. Oh, and there was one other. So we'll do two. Uh, well, Margaret's remarks were bordering on what I was going to talk about, which was um, was depression. And Freud famously wrote a long time ago that uh, depression is anger turned inward. I think anger, all the emotions people are talking about, anger, fear, uh, despair, um, they're hard to they they they're hard to tease apart. Um, I've dealt with depression and dysthymia for a long time, and and so I think about this um, the self hatred and um, and uh, Sharon Salzberg said somewhere that um, you can't found a practice on self hatred, <laughs> which um, but I I I think we're we're talking a lot about well, it was your theme, I guess, um, Suze, to talk about hatred aimed outward at people that we, in the public sphere, but but I, I think there is this hatred that we aim inward too. Um, and uh, and it's, I haven't quite figured it out. I, I think you were talking about separation, separating the self from others. Um, in an internal way, I suppose you're you're separating yourself from um, from yourself or from emotions that are hard for you to deal with. Um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm still thinking about that one. Um, yeah. And also, I I never added in about how important self compassion is. Um, yeah, there was only so much I could say tonight, um, but it's it's essential. And it's also, um, community is so essential around that. Mm -hmm. Usually our friends, even in our sometimes fractured, not terribly competent way, we, we know how to boost each other. We know how to say those nice things about how much we appreciate each other. 
And so it's both the self-compassion and the connection with others. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a psychologist and I don't know a lot about that, but certainly it's, and it's easy in the, in the worldly political realm to get really despairing and depressed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right about the culture kind of, in some ways, fomenting that or relying on it. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of, I think that kind of self-abnegation comes from a lot of comparison. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, comparing yourself to others or comparing or judging others. Um, anyway. Um, oh, wow. That's a huge, that's a big yeah. one right there <laughs> maybe we'll spend the whole next year on that one <clears throat> yeah um well thanks bob that you're you've added to the exploration of some of the emotional aspects of of anger so thanks and one last um comment hi would you say your name please hi my name's katie thanks for taking my question so my question is about how to deal skillfully with the anger of others in your community. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I've actually come, I certainly have more work to do, but I, for myself, have come pretty far in dealing with my own anger. But where I've really been struggling recently is I have a lot of close friends who, who are very angry um, and who really lean into their anger. Um, and also I think invite me into it as well. And, and want, I think want sometimes for me to participate as a way of showing solidarity or something like that. And I, I haven't quite figured out how to manage that skillfully while staying in my practice, but also not like denying their experience. Um, but but also not getting stuck in this weird place where I'm like, ah, I, ah. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, that's where I get, I think, frozen as other people have said is when that happens, I get sort of stuck. So anything, yeah. any what, thoughts? What, about that? what have you tried already? That's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, certainly listening and understanding. Um, I think sometimes I get a little, I wonder if it's my place to push back on it. Um, and I think that's where I sort of get stuck for myself is, mm -hmm. is sometimes I want to, to challenge the anger a little, um, not because the things they're angry about, not, not because they're not worth being angry about necessarily, but um, mm -hmm. because anger and acting on it doesn't feel like the most skillful thing to do, but yeah. I don't, I don't really know how to, if challenging it is, is even the right thing. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, I've done some unskillful stuff, <laughs> for sure. There's a group of people that it seems like every time we get together, we end up with a kind of complaint session that is so unfulfilling. And um, I've tried when we're at another time, when we're not in the midst of it, to just say, hey, have you noticed what happens when we get together and then somebody starts talking about, it's, just, it's often about homelessness and what the, 
whoever in the city that they don't like what they're doing or, you know, whatever. And so I've tried to just like stop it and say, anybody open to like changing the conversation, which hasn't always worked. It's helped when I've done something after when it were not in the midst of it, but I get together with a person separately and just say, you know, I've been kind of wondering what to do with all that. It makes, you know, I feel uncomfortable. What, mm -hmm. what do you think? And just have a conversation about the process. Um, there's so much anger that we all walk around with and seem to express all the time. It's, um, I don't have any, any great answers. I think mm -hmm. that you deserve to have positive interactions in your life you know just like we all do and talking with friends about hey what are you what are you feeling what you know about not the content but about the process um mm -hmm. that would be that's my only suggestion and uh, yeah I think that's that's interesting i mean it kind of makes me think a little bit differently about it and that you know i i've always looked at you know my friends or my community's experiences and their emotions as being the valid ones i guess mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but i think you bring up an interesting point that like i'm having my own emotion and my own response to the situation that is different but that doesn't make it any less valid yeah, yeah. so okay. i'm sorry we have to cut that off i'm going no to you. give a few minutes for um some announcements and Thanks to everybody for your attention and for your sharing, for all for broadening and deepening this conversation. It's not the end of it for sure. Thanks. I uh, we kind of went on a little long, <clears throat> so apologies. So, just taking one moment of appreciating the Dhamma, our Sangha, may we all dwell with a calm, contented, and grateful heart and mind. Thanks, everybody.